Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. So anyone know what that would be from? Like what kind of genre of thing that might be from? Yeah, what kind of commercial? Any Car commercial, yeah. So this is a car commercial. I'm hoping that that's not the people that heard this talk this morning because they're the only ones that get it. <laughs> but like, you know, we'll go with it. Um, so yeah, it's a car commercial. And one of the things I find really fascinating about car commercials is how often they find themselves, like they'll, they'll go off and do whatever, and they always end like in front of a beautiful house or camping, yeah. right? And um, uh, the thing I find really fascinating about these car commercials is um, they'll, they'll often have the family or the couple or whoever driving around and, and that, and then they'll end in this wonderful place. And what you notice isn't much, uh, talked about very much is the actual car. Like, nothing about the quality of the engine, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It's mainly about the lifestyle that this car can bring you. Okay. Um, uh, and what I call that lifestyle is the white picket fence. The white picket fence. Um, uh, traditionally, it's been called the Great American Dream or the Great Australian Dream. Um, and it's been around since the 1950s. Um, and it kind of goes like this. You get into your early 20s and you get a good education or an apprenticeship or something like that. You find the great spouse, you get married, you get good jobs, you have fun adventures, maybe you travel overseas, but you regularly go um, travelling, um, you know, often camping because it's in the TV ads. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you um, go uh, travelling all over the place and you have a lovely, nice rental apartment where you have great sex, which leads to you having great kids. And then you have these great kids, and, you, and um, uh, those kids are cute little babies that sleep through the night perfectly from the minute that they're, um, aware, uh, they're alive, and you move from renting a really nice apartment to renting a really nice house, and then both of you actually, while having these kids and looking after them, also get promotions at work, which is great because you're going to need that when you get the mortgage for the even better house that you're all going to move into as the kids get a little bit older and now they're getting into school. And you get them to school and they're just great and they're doing great at school and they're making friends and you make friends with their parents and those parents and everyone, they all come round on weekends and um, uh, they come round to your nice, neat and tidy house where everything's wonderful and there's just enough toys for all the rest of the kids to play with and the dads sit around the, stand around the barbecue talking about how great life is while the mums, they all stand around somewhere else nattering about how great and perfect and neat and tidy and all that wonderful stuff their life is. Right. And in modern parlance, we would call that having your crap together. And the thing is, as Christians, what's really interesting is family is a core component of 
what the Bible is on about. Like the Bible really cares about family. It's got a lot to talk about um, marital uh, health and about looking after your children and all this kind of stuff. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of work, of having a good, you know, of, of working hard, being diligent in your workplace, um, being good workers. It has a lot to say about the importance of education, all of that. And because of that, it becomes very easy to, to, to marry those two things together and to assume that because the church is on about, that the Bible is on about that kind of stuff to a degree and our society is about that, that actually the Bible's there to be a kind of manual for how you achieve that, how you achieve the white picket fence. Um, uh, the, the white picket fence is our society's kind of goal and Christianity's agreed that that's the goal and it said we are the best way that you can achieve that goal. Now, this comes out in all kinds of different um, types of Christianity and they manifest it in different ways. So in more kind of Pentecostal um, traditions, you might have a tendency towards that prosperity gospel type stuff. And, you know, that, that can um, manifest that way. Um, but actually, evangelicals are really, really quite big on this too. It's just they're, they're less ambitious. What I mean by that is, like, and less brazen, let's put it that way. So it's, it's not the luxury model that prosperity gospel stuff does, but it, it's a kind of just above middle class, a little upper middle class version of it. And the methodology is different. The methodology basically comes down to that if you pray and read your Bible every day, if you apply, you know, it's, it's work and family principles in your life, if you believe the right theology, if you go to the right kind of church and you nod at the preacher's sermon points at just the right time. Yeah, good, good. Um, uh, if you join a midweek small group, which looks awfully, awfully similar to the weekend where you're all sitting around the barbecue, but you've got Bibles, so that makes it completely different, right? Then you'll get all of that. Now, I, I want to preface, I, I actually think the small group thing is really great. I think your life groups are really good. One of the things that was pointed out this morning when um, uh, you guys were promoting that is how a central ethic of um, your groups here is being real. And see, that gets to my problem with all of this. My problem is that that is really hard to do. Okay, the white picket fence thing is really, really, really hard to do. How's it working out for you? How's the work, white picket fence working out for you? Because I've got to tell you, I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who have been playing by the rules. They've done the whole going to church, nodding at the sermons, joining the life group, all that kind of thing. I know pastors. I know pastors' kids. I know elders. I know youth pastors, youth leaders, church secretaries, all the rest of it. And they've all played by the rules. One of them, his daughter developed anorexia. Another... Beautiful couple, young couple, early 20s, going great. Every, followed the rules, total 
sold on Christians. They'll probably be divorced by the end of the year. And um, uh, they haven't even got to the part where they have the happy family or the, you know, rent the big house yet. They, they didn't even get to that point. Another um, uh, a friend of mine, he's, they've got two picture-perfect sons. And it just so happens that one of those sons has really bad depression. And um, the wife, picture-perfect wife, she's got depression too. And they are really, really struggling. And did they do anything? No, they followed the rules. Right? They were leaders in their church, like a lot of these people are. And I know for me, I have three beautiful kids and a wonderful wife and a really messy house. And um, one of my kids has major problems with social skills. Um, and my parents-in-law live with me, and my father-in-law has dementia, and that causes us a lot of stress, a lot of stress. Um, and like none of us, none of us who have found ourselves in this less-than-perfect white picket fence world, none of us did anything that bad. You know, like we haven't been perfect, but... We've done our best to follow the rules. My, my son's issues, they just happened. My friend's son's issue just happened. You know, the couple who fell away from each other, it just happened. Like, they made mistakes and stuff like that. But the hardest thing, I think, as well, uh, is that we've all tried so hard to show everyone that we had our crap together. Because, like, we're trying to convince other people that Christianity is great and it's this great manual for having this great life, this white picket fence. And if we don't have it, how can anyone believe that, that they can have it too? So what we do is we try desperately to um, say to everyone, no, 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 I do have my crap together just like you can too. Except that it's really hard. It's really hard and it gets tiring trying to have your crap together and to tell everyone. And eventually the cracks start to show and then they just, they just break wide open. And see, if the Bible is meant to be this great manual for how to achieve all of this and we're not getting it, that kind of leaves us with really only two options. Either... It's on us, and we're not doing the Bible's manual stuff well enough. And that's going to make us feel ashamed, guilty. Or we come to the point where we go, no, 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 I've tried my best, I've done all I could. Maybe the Bible's a crappy manual. Maybe the, the Bible, it sucks as a manual, and so therefore we get angry. First at the Bible, potentially the church, and then at God himself. But what if, what if? That's not what the Bible's for. Because I've got to tell you, think through the people that you know in the Bible, like, you know, the stories that you've heard. Who has the white picket fence in there? Do Adam and Eve have the white picket fence? Does Noah 
with his three strapping sons who just, you know, never see him naked. Um, or, you know, Abraham, Jacob. Now, there's a guy with 12 very happily functional children, right? <laughs> or David with his cute little sons like Absalom. Or Solomon. Or, sorry, that's my wife, about not having a crap together. Okay. <laughs> I may have set her up for that. Okay. Um, uh, or Josiah, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Malachi, or any of them. Do any of those have their crap together? Well, I mean, they're Old Testament, so they're meant to suck. So that's okay. <laughs> So let's, let's move into the New Testament. Let's, I don't know, let's go with Peter. Let's go with one notable example. I mean, Peter. Peter's the best of the disciples, right? He's, he's the one that, um, uh, you know, the, the church ends up going, wow, we should name the Pope after you, you know, all this kind of thing. So what's his most notable moment in the entire New Testament? What's, particularly in the Gospels, what's the thing that he is most famous for? Well, it's this. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, well, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yet tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And of course, where does that end up? Well, not long after, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, up, came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene. Jesus, she said. But he denied it. Oh, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Okay, so I'm going to get a bit technical for a second, but bear with me. This is from Mark. Now, I don't know how much you know about how the Gospels were put together, but most scholars seem quite sure that Mark was the first Gospel ever written. He kind of created the genre. And then what happened was that Matthew and Luke came along and they used his Gospel as kind of the base for their one. 
They'd read it, they liked it, and they went, hey, we, Mark's done a great job with his gospel, but there's actually extra stuff that we have that's probably worth another 10 chapters, so we're going to chuck that in too. Okay? And then John comes at the very end, the very tail end of this whole gospel-making process, and what he does is he says, okay, yes, the others did a good job, but like there are bits that they just missed. They couldn't write it all down, so I'm just going to fill in the blanks for you guys and tie up some loose ends. Okay. Now, that leads to the next question, which is who wrote them? So the rule for the early church in determining who should be the person, how you could tell that it was a, a gospel that you would you know, take as legit, was that it had to have as its main source a person who had walked around with Jesus. Okay? Now with Matthew and John, that's easy because they're actually disciples, so problem solved right there. Luke's interesting. Luke um, lived in Antioch, and so it seems like at Antioch there were quite a few people who had walked around with Jesus who'd gone up there to be part of the church planting there, and so they, they hang out with him and, and he gets his, his details from them. But who's Mark's source? Mark was not a disciple. Like, he was not one of the 12 apostles or anything like that. So he's actually drawing from someone else. And you know who that was? Peter. See, by the time Mark is writing, see how it's kind of mid-60s, mid-late 60s? Peter's actually dead. He's just been executed by Nero, the emperor Nero. And... Um, he's died as this martyr. And why was he executed? He was executed because he was a very prominent figure within the Christian church in Rome. He was their senior leader. He was their pastor. Right? He was so definitive in his leadership. He was this prominent pastor of a prominent church in the most prominent city in the whole of the Roman Empire, Rome. He's a, he's a bigwig. He's a success story. Right? And um, be, uh, because of that, when he dies, the church put a lot of respect on people who died as martyrs. So he doesn't just die as like a martyr. He dies as a hero. He dies as a saint. He dies as the quintessential saint. And so, like, so much to the point where even now, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, still identifies... Every single pope identifies themselves with Peter. He's that guy. And so not long before he dies, he's, he's sitting around with Mark and he says to Mark, listen, I'm about to go. I don't know where things are going to go from here, but we better just take a moment and we better write down the Jesus story. Okay, I think we'll call it a gospel. What do you reckon, Mark? And Mark goes, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's great. And so they, they, they sit down and Peter starts telling the story of what it was like walking around with Jesus during those years. And do you realise that, what that means? It means, who's the person who tells Mark about Peter's denial? 
It's Peter. It's Peter himself. Peter chooses to have himself defined in this book by his denying that he even knew Jesus in Jesus' darkest hour. Because think for a second, he doesn't have to put that in. No one's written a gospel before. There are no rules on how you write a gospel, right? He could totally skip over that. He could go like, you know, that was my crazy night, you know? Like, I mean, let's just focus on the most important person here. Let's just focus on Jesus. The whole thing about Jesus is just... And what was I doing, Mark? I, you know, I had a thing. Um, you know, like, I, I, you know, let's... No. He, he's there, and in the midst of it, he goes, i got to tell you something about me that I want you to put in there. I denied him. I denied him three times, and he warned me that I would, and I'd swore to him that I wouldn't, and then I did. But wait, it, it actually gets better, because once you realise that, it's, it's interesting to ask, what else doesn't Peter tell about himself in Mark? There's actually quite a few interesting things that Peter doesn't tell Mark to put in the gospel. We have to wait for other gospels to do that. So this is Mark's version of Jesus walking on water. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. Right? He's Jesus. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Oh, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, did you notice I stopped there for a minute and had a bit of a gap? What happens in that gap? Anyone know what happens in that gap between them seeing Jesus, him saying, don't be afraid, and then him climbing into the boat? Peter walks on water with Jesus. That's a neat trick. <laughs> That's a cool story. I don't know, but personally, if I was Peter, man alive, I'd be putting that in. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be like, and then you would never guess what happened. I got out of the boat. Yeah, it was amazing. And I walked to him and then something happened. But then we got back in the boat together and it was great. <laughs> yeah. It felt kind of squishy, but it was fine, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't tell a soul. He doesn't even include that. Right? That, you have to wait till Matthew 14 to find that. Peter goes out of his way to avoid talking about his highlights, his best moments, the moment when he was just awesome with Jesus when he had his crap together the closest you get to him getting it right is him telling Jesus I think you're the Christ 
followed very quickly by Jesus calling him Satan. In fact, I, I really encourage you to go home and read Mark and look at how Peter and the disciples are depicted because they are depicted as weak, stupid, petty, blind, stubborn, pretentious, arrogant, ambitious. Their hearts were hardened. And that most definitely includes Peter. Peter goes out of his way to make sure everybody knows that when he was walking beside the Son of God, he most certainly did not have his crap together. And there's one last thing that I want to highlight that isn't recorded at all in Mark's Gospel. This is how Mark's Gospel ends. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, where you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Do you notice how Peter is now separate from the disciples at this point? Go tell the disciples, oh, and that guy. Because you, you denied him. Thanks, we're done. That's how Peter ends it with Mark. But, but what happened, Peter? You can imagine, if you were Mark, you'd be like, and, and then what happened? How did things work out? Like, did you, did you and Jesus sort things out after that? Like, like, he must have come alongside and told you that everything was cool, right? Like, Peter gives him nothing. Nothing. Right? The last words you hear from, Jesus, uh, from Peter in this gospel are, I didn't even know the guy. He dies. Peter dies knowing what happened after that and when he had the chance to tell everyone about it he doesn't say a word and for about 30 years that's it but then John finally writes his gospel and he's just got to tidy up a few loose ends. And one of the loose ends that really bothers him is how Peter, look, you know, I loved you, man, but I didn't like the way you, you left things with you and, and Jesus in that because that's not what it was like, man. It, it, it had a happy ending. You should, you should at least tell that. And so this is how John finishes his gospel. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. All along, all along while he's sitting with Mark, Peter would have, like, wouldn't he remember that? Like, that's one of those definitive moments in his life, in his career, in everything. He, he's sitting around chatting with the risen Jesus. Like, that's, that's pretty damn impressive. And how good is that on his resume? I mean, come on, right? Right? You notice the three times thing? Jesus is saying, you, you screwed up three times, I'm going to fix it three times. And all that can, like this is total reconciliation. And not just that, this is a formal endorsement by Jesus, feed my sheep, like be a leader for my, my movement. And it ends with like Peter, remember Peter, when he's telling Mark all of this, this is just before Peter's about to die and Jesus predicted the exact way. How cool would it be to end it that way? How cool would it be to say, and you know what, then Jesus and I fixed it totally up and he went, I'm your leader and I'm gonna, you know, you're going to die just the way that it's about to happen to me, Mark. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so good of Jesus? And it also makes me look really good, you know? And he doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. We don't even hear about all the cool stuff he does like after that with like, you know, Pentecost and stuff in Mark. You know, Peter never says, and by the way, I, I also preached the Pentecost sermon. And by the way, I, I also converted the first Gentile and, you know, all that kind of... No, you have to wait for Luke to do that in his sequel in Acts. What does that tell us? It tells that from the Bible's perspective, it is not... A manual for success. Peter's not interested in showing you how perfectly he's got his crap together. Now, it's not that it, it won't improve lives, it will. Statistically, any society in the world that has embraced the gospel has seen a marked improvement in their standards of living. Compassion's great. And they do great stuff, as do many of these kind of organisations. Right? The closest any society has ever got to the white picket fence being a reality is in Christian contexts. Right? But that is not its definition of what makes you a good person or a good Christian or a good Christian leader or a good Christian anything. Because the Bible's not interested in 
you being perfect and being, you know, having all your crap together. It is about Jesus. It is about God in Jesus entering into our crap together with us. It is about Jesus, God, humbling himself in order to love and bless others and for us to humble ourselves in order to love and bless others. Peter's restraint is actually an, a beautiful expression of his humility. Jesus comes to offer us forgiveness and grace when we desperately need it, when we don't have our crap together. The Bible is about us experiencing his spirit in us working in spite of our crap to slowly change the world, to bring glimpses of a future world, a world where we don't get our crap together, he, Jesus, takes away our crap altogether. The gospel is about that grace, that hope. Friends, we are not offering uh, a 10-step program to having your crap together. We are not expected to be role models of how to have your crap together. We are merely people. People who try our best, relying on a force in us, a person in us, who is stronger than us, the Spirit of Christ. We rely on him to help us move forward, to make the world, our world, a better place. Not a perfect place, that, that's got to wait, but better, better. But we are not our friends' saviours. Jesus is their saviour. And see, the thing is, I, I actually know a lot of the parents of my kids' school friends, and I know lots of people of all ages, Christians, non-Christians, all the rest of it. And when you get to know them, you find out that they don't have their crap together either. Right? And you know why? Because having your crap together is really, really, really hard. It's impossible. There's only so many hours in the day. It's really hard. And why? Because we still live in a broken world. We're not at that future yet. We have to stop pretending. Pretending only exhausts us and it leads to disillusion for those we seek to serve. Instead... What do we do? We offer what Peter offered, which is God's hope and grace revealed in Jesus Christ to ourselves, to each other, to everyone else. His grace and hope to empower us in our successes and to forgive us in our failures. That's what Peter offered in Mark's Gospel and that's all we can and need to offer now. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. 
to connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.